When it comes to the identity of our Savior, Jesus, the Bible presents us with many titles that help us to understand the authority of our Christ. For example, Jesus is called the Almighty One. Not only that, but he's also called the Alpha and the Omega, which is another way of saying the beginning and the end. Jesus is called the High Priest. He's also called the head of the church. Not only that, but Jesus is also called the King of Kings. And he's the Lord of Lords. And while we rejoice in knowing that Jesus is our mediator and our Messiah, we must not fail to recognize that Christ Jesus is also our master. And we are his servants. With that being the case, I can't help but to wonder how many of us here this morning can truly say that Jesus is our master? How many of us are truly living our lives in submission to our Savior, Jesus? Is Jesus your master? And just to be clear, the word master actually refers to the one who has authority over another. And whether you know it or not, our Messiah, he's not only our Savior, but he is the master who has complete authority over those who trust in him. If you've placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you've effectively submitted yourself to Jesus as our master. And with that being the case, we, we should take a moment to ask, is Jesus really the master of my life? Am I truly his servant? And just to be clear, you know, we're going to spend our time today considering this question in three different ways. First of all, we're going to ask, is the Messiah the master of my mouth? Secondly, we're going to ask, is the Messiah the master of my mind? Thirdly and finally, we're going to ask, is the Messiah the master of my ministry? With this as our outline, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Here we find Paul, he's encouraging his audience to make sure that our Messiah is also our master. And as we make our way to the second chapter of Philippians, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll first help us to remember that it was in the previous paragraph where Paul reminded his readers that the Lord Jesus is not just our Messiah who humbled himself, you know, through the physical incarnation and then through his crucifixion, but he's also now the risen Redeemer who has been exalted to the highest position of honor. The Lord Jesus is now the King of Kings, and every knee will bow before him, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Master. And with that, we would do well today to realize that our Messiah, Jesus, is not only our Savior, but he is also our master. And with this as the focus, I want to pick up our study of Philippians chapter 2. Look with me, uh, beginning there at verse 12. Here Paul declares, therefore, therefore what? Therefore, because Jesus is king of kings and because every knee is going to bow before him, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless. Children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me. Now here in our text today, we find Paul, he's challenging the Christians at the church there in Philippi to make sure that they were serving, to make sure that they were servants who were serving our Savior and to do so with the right motivations. 
The reason why this is so important is due to the fact that it's not uncommon for Christians to serve and yet to serve for all the wrong reasons. There are many people who step up and serve uh, you know, for motivations other than simply obeying our master. Some are motivated to serve from a sense of guilt. They feel guilty about their past. They feel guilty about sins in their life. And so from a sense of guilt, they want to serve Jesus Christ. It's the wrong motivation. Others are motivated by the desire to push their own agenda. Uh, These are people who are oftentimes motivated to serve because they want position. They want power. They want authority over others rather than simply being servants of our master Jesus. And it's for this reason that Paul encourages every believer to make sure that they were being motivated by the simple desire to serve Jesus, our master. To make my case, let's back up. Let's take a closer look here at verse 12. Here Paul declares, My beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, here in this verse, we find Paul, he's commending the Christians in Philippi for the way that they obeyed the Lord while he was there with them. At the same time, I'm sure that Paul was also aware of the fact that his absence might become the occasion for those who might backslide. He's he's concerned that there might be some backslidden believers, you know, after his departure. And, and, you know, so he's basically saying, hey, I'm, I'm glad that you obeyed while I was there. And I'm glad that you're obeying much more while I'm gone. But he's also kind of saying, hey, make sure that you continue walking in obedience. And and one reason why is, well, you know, I think uh, the the idiom uh, puts it best. While the cat is away, the mice will play. We recognize this. You know, this expression describes the way that people tend to misbehave whenever the authority figure is absent. You know, when the teacher leaves the classroom, the kids start misbehaving, right? We, we realize that, you know, when the accountability of the authority figure is gone, there's a tendency on the part of some to start misbehaving. And what this means then is that the obedience of the proverbial mice is contingent upon the location of the cat. You know, and, and, and there are times when, you know, the behavior of the believer is also contingent upon the location of their accountability partner, you know, or, or you know, is there, is there pastor around? There are Christians who put on a facade of being obedient believers as, you know, as soon as they pull into the parking lot. You know, they've been yelling at their spouse all the way to church, and then they, then they pull in, into the parking lot, and all of a sudden they put the halo on, you know, and they're, uh, you know, they're like, uh, okay, now I'm going to you know, church it up here and, and act like I'm a good believer here. But then they leave church after, you know, putting on a show of it for, you know, an hour and a half, And the facade of obedience is quickly removed as soon as they get home and are free from the accountability of other believers. And it's sad to say that there are many in the church today who are leading a double life. They pretend to be obedient believers at church, only to then go home and just openly live in unrepentant sin. And if this sounds like your life, then the chances are your motivations are probably less about obeying our master, and they're more about maintaining the facade of faithful obedience in the presence of other believers. Listen, you can put on a show in front of me and and think that you're getting away with something when you go home and live like the devil. But listen, I'm not your master. I'm not your master. And and, and listen, Jesus sees you at home too. Did did you know that Jesus is not just at, at the church where two or more are gathered together in his name? That he sees you at home as well? He sees you when you're sinning? Please understand that our desire should be to simply live in obedience to our master, our Messiah, Jesus Christ. We should have a desire to walk in obedience with Jesus because he is our master. With this in mind, it will help you to know that the word obey, which is found there in verse 12, It's translated from a Greek word which was used of those who hearkened to the commands of their master. The same word was also used of those who submit to the teachings of our Savior Jesus Christ. And not only that, but the same Greek word was also used of those who obey the doctrines 
that we find in the epistles, like in the epistles of Paul. Furthermore, Paul also used the same Greek word, which is rendered obeyed. We find this in Romans chapter 6, where he encouraged every believer to become slaves of righteousness as we obey from the heart that form of doctrine to which we were delivered. We are to obey from the heart, and we'll talk more about this in the second point. But listen, in order to further grasp this level of obedience, I want to take another look at verse 12, because here Paul declares, My beloved, as you have always obeyed, as you have always you know, submit your life to the teachings of our Savior Jesus Christ, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What does it mean to obey? To work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And from this, we can see that those who are walking in obedience are working out their own salvation. And just to be perfectly clear, please pay attention. Paul wasn't telling us to work for our salvation. He didn't say work for your salvation with fear and trembling. No, instead we've been called to work out the salvation that we've received by faith in Jesus Christ. And what this means is that we've been called to obey from the heart that form of doctrine to which we were delivered as we set out to accomplish the good works that the Lord has prepared for us to accomplish. I like the way that Paul puts it here in in, uh, uh, Philippians chapter 2. You would look with me again there at verse 12. Here again he declares, My beloved, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Here in these verses we find Paul, he's helping his audience to understand that the believer who is motivated by the desire to simply live a life that's pleasing to the Lord will begin to realize that the Lord is the one who actually empowers us to accomplish the works that are actually according to his will. The Lord is the one who works in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. The psalmist tells us to delight ourselves in the Lord and he will give us the desires of our heart. In other words, if you delight yourself in serving our master first, he will give you the right desires in your heart so that then you can serve him according to his plan. Listen, the Lord is not expecting us to work our way into heaven with fear and trembling. Instead, God is the one who is at work within the believer so that we can accomplish his will. So we come to to salvation by faith in Jesus Christ and In Christ, God begins to work in us so that we can serve him accordingly. I like the way that Paul explains it in Ephesians chapter 2. There he declares, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. From this, we can see that salvation isn't earned by those who try to work their way into heaven. No, instead, salvation is simply a gift of grace which is received by faith in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But yet, at the same time, those who truly are saved, well, we've become new creations in Christ Jesus. And as new creations in Christ Jesus, we can begin to engage in the good works that born-again believers are called to accomplish according to the predetermined plan of God. And according to Paul, we should be ready to obey our master. And we should be ready to obey our master without any arguments and complaints. Now this brings us to our first point. With that, I want to focus your attention once again at Philippians chapter 2. Look with me, beginning again at verse 12. Here Paul declares, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Then he says this, do all things without complaining and disputing. Wow. 
Believers have not only been called to walk in obedience according to the good works of God, but we've been called and, and, and we were expected to obey our master without complaining. We're, we're called to obey our master without any complaints. Just to be clear, that word complaining found there in verse 14, it's translated from a Greek word which was used of those who murmur and mutter as they grumble about all the things they don't like. And it's sad to say that there are many who love to grumble about the good works that we're called to accomplish. They, they love to grumble after a study like this. Well, pastor keeps talking about people serving, you know. And so you grumble about it because you don't want to hear about that. Paul calls us to do things, do all these things without grumbling. And not only that, uh, but, but he also uh, calls us to do this without disputing. There are, there are those who struggle to serve our Savior. And the reason why is because they're too busy engaging in disputes with those who are trying to disciple them. You know, the Lord brings you someone to disciple you in the context of church life, and, and rather than listening to what they have to say, you'd rather just argue with them about it. That word disputing, which is found there in verse 14, is translated from a Greek word which speaks of those who love to argue with those that they doubt or those that they disagree with. And in this context, Paul's referring to the Christians who love to quarrel with those who are leading them. And it's sad to say that the church is filled with those who would much rather spend their time disputing than they would serving. They'd much rather argue with their disciples than to simply start serving our Savior as we submit to our Master. Now listen, as we consider Paul's encouragement, it's crucial for Christians to understand that we're not only called to walk in obedience by accomplishing the good works of God, but we've also been called to serve our Savior without grumbling and without complaining. At the same time, we should also submit to our Savior without engaging in never-ending arguments with those who are called to lead us. And with this as the goal, we should take a moment to examine our own lives by asking, is our Messiah truly the master of my mouth? Or am I constantly grumbling and disputing with those I disagree with? Before you answer this question, we should consider the way that James addressed this issue. If you would, hold your place here in the book of Philippians. Let's turn in our Bibles to James chapter 3. And as you make your way to the third chapter of James, I just want to take a moment to point out that the Bible has a lot to say about the way believers should be speaking. The Bible has a lot to say about the, the things that we ought to be saying, and at the same time, Christians are also encouraged to refrain from cursing and coarse jesting and other sorts of language that would offend the ears of the hearer. With all this in mind, let's consider the way that James summed it up here in his epistle. If you would look with me here at James chapter 3, I want to focus your attention beginning at verse 5. Here he declares, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell where every kind of beast and bird of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Here in these verses we find James, he's helping his audience to understand that those who are truly submitting to our Savior will also allow our Messiah to become the master of our mouths. Or in other words, you know, the, the Christian who continues grumbling about the good works that we've been called to accomplish is simultaneously failing to submit their speech to the authority of our Savior. And listen, the believer who sings the praises of, Lord, of the Lord here at church, but then turns around, goes home, and curses out their spouse, well, they're failing to let our Messiah become the master of their mouths. That being the case, I encourage you, 
to remember what our Messiah said in Matthew chapter 15. It's verse 11 where he declares, It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a man. It's not what goes into our mouth that defiles us, it's what comes out. And those who use their mouths to spew forth sinful things, well, they're actually defiling themselves. And they're not only defiling themselves, but they're defiling those who hear them. Rather than grumbling and gossiping, we should be speaking the truth in love according to the leading of the Lord. Rather than cussing and complaining, we ought to be singing the praises of our Savior. Rather than saying whatever we want to say because it's simply at the top of mind, Let's make sure that we're becoming those believers who instead are allowing our Messiah to be the master of our mouths as we set out to speak the truth in love. And while it's true that the Messiah should be the master of our mouths, it's also true that our Messiah should be the master of our minds. And with this as the focus, if you would, let's make our way back to Philippians chapter 2. Here we find Paul. He's encouraging his audience to align their lives according to the truth of God's word. And with that... I'm going to back up and begin reading once again at verse 14. It's here where Paul declares, Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Now, here in these verses, we find Paul, he's helping the Christians there in Philippi to realize that they were living in an extremely perverted place. Philippi was a very perverted place. And, and, and you know, uh, there were the cults of Diana and Dionysius and Isis. These, these were prevalent cults there in Philippi. And so we shouldn't be surprised to learn that, well, it wasn't uncommon for the people there in Philippi to engage in religious rituals, with, which oftentimes included acts of sexual immorality. And this is something that people were just raised up in the, in the midst of. People were raised in this context of sexual immorality being connected together with religious systems. And so it wasn't uncommon for these people to, to grow up thinking that all of this was just natural. All of this is just the way things are. Without getting into all the nitty-gritty, you know, Paul summed up the sinfulness of this society as he calls it a crooked and perverse generation. In other words, they weren't straight, and they weren't pure. They were sinful. They were engaging in all manner of sexual immorality, and and in the name of, of worshiping their false deities. And with that being the case, you know, Paul wanted to make sure that the Christians there in Philippi were really beginning to realize that they had to you know, get out of these, these practices and, and, and to back away from these cults and to realize that you know, Christianity has nothing to do with the, the, the perverts who were in the, those other belief systems. And so he calls the Christians in Philippi to become blameless rather than crooked and to become harmless rather than perverts. That word blameless, which is found there in verse 15, is translated from a Greek word which was used of those who are walking according to the will of the Lord. Rather than going and worshiping some idol at a temple where they're engaging in sexual morality, he says, no, no, come over here and be a blameless believer who's walking according to the will of the Lord. That word blameless uh, is the same word that Luke used in Luke chapter 1, where he describes Aaron and Elizabeth as blameless before the Lord. Now, now, does this mean that they were sinless? Not at all. No one said they were blameless, which is to say that under the Old Testament system, Aaron and Elizabeth were offering the proper sacrifices for any sins that they did commit. And in this way, you know, they were blameless, having you know, the atoning lambs, uh, the blood of those lambs, you know, covering their sins. And, and listen, I'm here to tell you that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who has, by his blood, atoned for the sins of those who trust in him. And with that, we can be blameless believers here in this church age. We should also consider 
how the word blameless is used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. It's there in verse 12 where Paul declares, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Now, From this, we can see that the Lord Jesus is the one who is able to establish our hearts blameless in holiness. Our holiness? No. No, he establishes our hearts blameless in his holiness. And what I mean to say is that he covers our sins with his righteousness, and in this we become positionally blameless in the holiness of Christ Jesus. And while it's true that he establishes our hearts blameless with his positional holiness, and this happens at the moment of our conversion, it's also true, though, that he establishes us then eternally blameless at the time of our resurrection when we receive our glorified bodies. And so it's nice to know that as we receive those glorified bodies that we will continue to be blameless and even, I would say, sinless for the rest of eternity, and I glorify God for that. But until that day comes, listen, the Christian has become blameless in, in, uh, within Christ as we are covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And, and as, we, as we walk in positional holiness, being blameless in Christ, we've also been called than to walk in a way that is pleasing to the Lord as we abstain from the perversions of this wicked world so that we can then also be harmless. And so Paul here encourages the believers there in Philippi to not only become blameless, but also to become harmless. And that word harmless, which is found there in verse 15, it's translated from a Greek word which was used of those who are free from the deceit of duplicity. What this means then is that Christians are called to abstain from any sort of deceptive measures uh, that are employed by those who are hiding behind a phony facade of faith. And in this way, we become those believers who cannot be condemned by the carnal people of this world who love to call out the hypocrites that they see in the church. In other words, think about it like this. The hypocritical Christian who says that they follow Jesus Christ, but then lives their life in a completely different way. They're hypocrites, and when the world sees them, they call them out. And in this way, the hypocritical Christian then does harm to their own testimony as well as to the church. Hypocritical Christians are doing harm to the church because we're basically giving Jesus a black eye, so to speak. We're basically you know, helping unbelievers to, to question whether the church is effective or not. And we're, we're causing unbelievers to question whether Christ Jesus can truly change lives or not. And I want to consider again the way that Paul is explaining this here in our text today. Look with me again at verse 14. Here he declares, Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Now, uh, listen, when Paul says that we should be children of God that are without fault, he's using a Greek word that is very similar, uh, even synonymous with the Greek word which was rendered blameless. But this, this different Greek word, well, it's used to encourage Christians to become, you know, Christians who never need to be rebuked. So, so without fault could also be rendered free from rebuke. We should be children of God who are free from rebuke or, or, or not needing any rebuke at all. In other words, we ought to be living our lives above reproach so that we might have a good testimony in the eyes of others. And here in our text today, we find Paul comparing this sort of life to those who shine like lights in a dark place. Let's consider how he puts it again here in verse 14. Paul declares, do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom, notice, you shine as lights in the world. We shouldn't be adding to the darkness of this world. We should be shining like lights. And that word shine in this context, it's used of the spiritual light that comes from the Lord. We're not talking about our own light. We're talking about the light of the Lord. 
And while it's true that this wicked world has been affected by the darkness of depravity, well, it's also true that the Lord Jesus is calling every Christian to become like a light, a lamp that illuminates a dark room. As we go about our business here in this dark world, we should be like lights. People who are shining the spiritual light of the Lord. And in order to become these spiritual lights, it's crucial for every Christian to become those obedient believers who are simply submitting to our Savior. Or in other words, we must allow our Messiah to become the master of our lives, beginning with our minds. We must have a mind that is first committed and focused on the instructions of our Savior. And I want to consider how Paul puts it here in Philippians chapter 2. Look with me again, beginning at verse 14. Here he declares, Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Now listen, when Paul encourages the Christians there in Philippi to hold fast to the word of life, he's effectively instructing them to focus their minds on the truth of God's word. As a matter of fact, the phrase holding fast, it's translated from a Greek word which speaks of those who give mental attention to something with obedient observation. You know you can observe something, and give special attention to that thing while still disagreeing with it. You you can give mental attention to something and observe the truth of something and then fail to apply it to your life. You can sit in this service and nod your head yes and then leave and go and do the exact opposite. We're not talking about that. Holding fast means that you're giving mental attention to the teachings here uh, with obedient observation. The observation, it, it comes with obedience as you prepare to walk it out. Christians ought to pay close attention, holding fast to the word of life so that we might obey our master beginning with our minds. Just to be clear, the word of life is actually a reference to the Lord Jesus. And I like the way that the Apostle John put this. It's in 1 John chapter 1. It's there where he declares that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning what? Concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, notice, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, according to John here, the word of life is actually Jesus. John is telling us that Jesus is the word of life who was then manifested in the flesh so that we could be saved through his sacrifice. And while it's true that the word of life put on human frailty and walked among us, even offering himself up as a sacrifice for our sins, it's now also true that the incarnate word of life is being revealed to us in the pages of God's holy word. You see, we don't have the privilege of living on the planet at the same time Jesus here is walking among us. The word of life gave his life there on the cross. He was buried and rose from the grave on the third day, has since ascended into the presence of the Father. And now what we're left with here is the written word, which reveals the word of life, which is why Paul says, hey, hold fast the word of life, which is basically saying, hey, hold fast to the teachings that you find in the scriptures so that you can know the word of life, Jesus Christ. And this begins all with a mental submission to the truth of God's word, which helps us to understand who Jesus is and what he has done. We must hold fast 
to the word of life so that we can align our lives according to the truth that we find here in the scriptures. And so we've all been called to pay close attention to the teachings of God's word with obedient intent, which begins in the mind. And with that, I want to encourage you with the words of King Solomon. It's Proverbs chapter 3, where he declares, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Listen, rather than leaning on our own understanding like the perverted people here in this wicked world, rather than following after the trends that are found on the broad road that leads to destruction, thinking that this is the best path for us, Instead, the people of God should learn to trust in the Lord and to trust in him with all of our hearts, to to trust in him with all of our minds so that we might allow our Messiah to become the master of our minds. Obedience begins in the mind. And we must submit our minds to our master, Jesus Christ. And as we allow the living word of life to become the master of our minds, then we also become those blameless believers who shine as spiritual lights in this wicked world. So we see then that the Messiah should not only be the master of our mouths, but our Messiah should also be the master of our minds. Thirdly and finally, we should allow our Messiah to be the master of our ministry. And with this as the focus, let's make our way back to Philippians chapter 2. Here we find Paul encouraging his audience to uh, submit to our Savior in their ministry. And with that, I want to back up and begin reading once again at verse 17. It's there where Paul declares, yes. And if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Now here in the final verses of this paragraph, we find Paul, he's you know, talking about his ministry. He's talking about the part that he's playing in, in all of this. And we find him comparing his own ministry to that of the drink offerings, which were poured out with the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, which were presented there at the temple in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, the daily offerings, which were presented morning and evening, they would not only include fine flour as a grain offering mixed together with pressed oil, but the daily offerings would also include a drink offering, which would be poured out to the Lord as an offering to God. And it's here in our text today where we find Paul, he's comparing his service to those daily drink offerings. He's saying, I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. We should also notice how Paul here is comparing the obedient faith of the Christians there in Philippi to the daily sacrifices presented by the priests. Notice again in verse 17, yes, Paul says, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering, on what? On the sacrifice and service of their faith. Much like the priests of Israel who were offering daily sacrifices there at the temple, Paul commended the Christians there in Philippi for the daily sacrifices that they were offering to the Lord. And just to be clear, we're not talking about animal sacrifices here. They weren't leaving Philippi and going to Jerusalem and presenting animal sacrifices there. No, no, no. Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial system through his own sacrifice. Jesus is the Lamb of God who was given for the sins of the world. We don't need an animal sacrificial system anymore, and the destruction of the temple was proof of that. The the ripping of the veil there in the temple was proof that sacrificial system is over. So what sort of sacrifices were the Christians there in Philippi offering? They were offering themselves. They were offering themselves as living sacrifices as they spent their time serving our Savior according to the obedience of faith. Let's consider again how Paul puts it there in verse 17. He says, yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. That word service, 
It's translated from a Greek word which was used in a secular sense in reference to those who would take public office uh, and even undertake the administration of that office, even with their own expenses, using their own money to accomplish that public office. In a biblical sense, this word was used in reference to a service or even a ministry uh, of the priests relative to the prayers and the sacrifices that they would offer up to the Lord. And in this context of the church age, Paul here is referring to the ministry that the Christians there in Philippi were accomplishing as they set out to serve the Lord each and every day. From morning till evening, they were offering themselves a living sacrifice. In similar fashion, Paul encouraged the Christians in Rome to serve the Lord with the same sort of sacrifice. It's in Romans chapter 12, it's verse 1. There Paul declares, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable, what? Service. This is your reasonable service. Paul, again, using the imagery of the daily sacrifices, he encourages the Christians there in Rome to serve the Lord as living sacrifices. And what this means is that the believer who is truly submitting to our Savior is then also going to offer their lives up to the Lord as a daily sacrifice as we serve our Savior every morning, every evening, every day, always. Some might seem like this is, this is too much of an ask. This is too much. This is unreasonable, some would say. And Paul says, nope. This is your reasonable service. It's only reasonable for born-again believers who have been saved by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ to turn around and then and say, my life is a sacrifice to the Lord. He sacrificed his life for us so that we can now sacrifice our lives for him. Not to get saved, but because we've been saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Paul also assures us that our sacrificial service is not only reasonable, but it's a reason to rejoice. As a matter of fact, let's take another look at the verses here. In, in verses uh, uh, Philippians 2, verse 17, Paul declares, Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad. He's saying, hey, even if my life is completely poured out so that you guys can become servants of the Lord, I'm glad about it and, and, and rejoice with you all. And then for the same reason, verse 18, you also be glad and rejoice with me. In these verses, we find Paul helping his audience to understand that he was well pleased with the way that his life was being poured out because as his life was being poured out, they were beginning to offer up themselves as a living sacrifice through their faithful service. And, And he's saying, hey, this is a cause for all of us to rejoice together. Serving the Lord isn't a bummer. It's not depressing. It's not a grudging obligation. It's a privilege and a joy for those who have a proper perspective. So we encourage them to realize that those who sacrificially serve our Savior according to the obedience of faith will begin to rejoice in knowing that our Master is well pleased with our daily sacrifices. And it's for this reason that I encourage every Christian that we ought to be serving our Savior with a heart filled with joy. In light of this encouragement, I want to address the Christians who still make excuses for why they don't sacrificially serve our Savior every day. With this as the focus, I want to consider how Paul explains it in the letter he wrote to the Christians in Ephesus. Uh, So if you would, let's turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. And as you make your way to the fourth chapter of Ephesians... I just want to take a moment to remind you that every Christian has has actually been called to accomplish the Great Commission. I know I beat this drum often. I will continue because this is our primary purpose here on the planet, 
to continue accomplishing the Great Commission, which not only includes the evangelism of unbelievers, but it also includes the discipleship of believers as leaders teach new believers uh, everything that Jesus both taught and did. It's for this reason that I encourage you to look for every opportunity to accomplish the ministry of reconciliation, as Paul calls it, But we should also become those believers who are being equipped so that we can step up and serve our master and even in the context here of our church. I want to consider how Paul puts it here in Ephesians chapter 4. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 11, here Paul declares that he himself, speaking of Jesus, Jesus gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints to do what? The work of ministry. For the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ." from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which most parts do their share. Oh, no. No, sorry, it says by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Here in these verses, we find Paul, he's encouraging the Christians there at the church in Ephesus to embrace the discipleship program that was taking place at their church so that they might all be equipped for the work of ministry. And it's for this reason that Paul called every Christian to first submit to the headship of Jesus Christ. That's what he says in verse 15 when he says that we should be speaking the truth in love and grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ. Who is the head of the church? It's not me. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He is the master. We are the servants. And and within this context, Christ Jesus raises up a leadership hierarchy in each church that the rest of the church is to submit to so that we can all do our part in edifying that body. We must first submit to the headship of Christ Jesus as master so that we can become those believers who are accomplishing our calling in Christ within the context of our church. And with this as the goal, we ought to examine our own lives by asking, am I allowing our Messiah to be the master of my ministry or am I just out there doing my own thing? I can't even tell you how many ministries have been started out from underneath the the banner of the church. It's like every time I turn around, like someone's out, out there starting ministries. Well, well hold on a second. There, there's actually hierarchy that the Lord has established. And so before you go out and just start your own ministry, the, the question you have to ask is, is our Messiah the master of that ministry? Or are you just doing your own thing? And listen, the Christian who is failing to offer themselves as a daily sacrifice unto the Lord is also failing to fulfill the ministry that our Messiah actually has for us. Every Christian has been called to serve him within the context of their church so that the body can be uh, you know, complete and edifying itself in love. But that's difficult because then you have to submit to a leader and that, that leader is going to you know, give you instructions and, and directions and Sometimes that doesn't always line up with what we want. Well, who's the master? Is it you? Or is it Jesus? Listen, the Christian who is failing to fulfill the ministry that our Messiah has called us to accomplish is simultaneously failing to become those mature believers who are allowing our Messiah to be the master of our ministry. And with that being the case, I encourage you to apply the encouragement that uh, Paul presented to Archippus, and uh, not to be confused with Archie Comics. That's an old man joke right there. Archippus 
was a servant, and, and, and this is what Paul said to Archippus in Colossians chapter 4, verse 17. He says, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. We've been called to fulfill the ministry that the Lord has given to us within the context of our church. With this as the goal, I want to wrap up this study by presenting you with the same question I posed back in the beginning of this sermon. And the question is this, is my Messiah also my master? Oh, we love Jesus as Savior, but is he your master In other words, is the Messiah the master of your mouth? Are we using our mouths to sing the praises of our Savior and to speak the truth in love? Or are we still cussing and complaining with carnal words that corrupt the minds of those who hear our speech? We should ask, is the Messiah the master of my mind? In other words, are we looking to the word of life to guide us into every single decision that we make? Or are we, still, are we still just making up our own minds as we continue to lean on our own understanding? Finally, we should ask, is the Messiah the master of my ministry? Or in other words, are we actually offering ourselves as a daily sacrifice by faithfully serving our Savior according to the ministry that he's given us within the context of our church? Or are we still just doing what we want to do? even putting the name of Jesus Christ on those things. With these questions in mind, I want to remind you of something that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. It's verse 24 where he declares, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. We can't serve two masters. And what this means is that those who are still serving themselves are failing to submit to the one who truly is the master, our Savior Jesus Christ. That being the case, it's crucial for every Christian to become those believers who understand the importance of submitting every day to our Savior Jesus Christ. And in this way, we will make sure that our Messiah is also our master. Let's pray.